podcast about closeness and distance. Please leave a joke about a porcupine and a clarinet after the tone. Thanks. Bye. Saved message. Hey, Jeremy, I have an amazing joke to tell you. Why did the porcupine cross the road? To play the clarinet. To replay this message, press 1. To go to the previous message, press 1-1. Message saved. Saved message. A porcupine goes to the music store, and he asks the guy, what is the best instrument for me? The guy doesn't know, so he goes around, and he finds a clarinet. The porcupine sees the clarinet, and then he says, sorry, this isn't my instrument because I'll get stuck to it. Replay this message. Press 1 to go to the previous message. Press 1 1 to. Message saved. Saved message. How does the porcupine play the clarinet? Carefully. <laughs> to replay this message. Uh, so a porcupine and a clarinet are in a bar. They walk into a bar. They sit down. They have some drinks. One or two turn into two or three. Two or three turn into five or ten, and you know they're pretty, pretty far gone. And uh, they're having an argument, you know, trying to figure out who is Jack Deer. So that was about to be an extremely dirty joke about a porcupine and a clarinet. Uh, what I'm going to do is I will, first of all, I'll press rewind. If you want to hear the dirty jokes about the porcupines and the clarinets, uh, you can tune in after the credits. I'll play them then. Uh, otherwise, if you're listening with tender ears, you can peace out after the credits. You don't have to hear the blue version of the clarinet and the porcupine joke. Now, on with our show. Pines are all full of quills. Kiss them and you're sure to get thrilled. Weeping willows like to weep just like I weep for you. As a porcupine pines for its horn, that's how I pine for you. As a grandfather hops on the ground. The very grumpy German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer compared people living together to a company of porcupines on a bitterly cold night. They move closer together to find warmth and they prick one another with their quills. They move farther apart, and they risk dying of cold. Back and forth they go. Sometimes it seems to me like we are living in a particularly cold and prickly age in which other people are the problem, the problem to which, perversely, other people are the sole solution. A clarinetist studying at McGill's Music School in Montreal applied to a prestigious conservatory in California. Going to California might mean leaving his girlfriend, but if Yehuda Gilad consents to teach you, you pack up your clarinet and off you go. He was talented, but the competition was stiff, and when he got an email back from YehudaGilad09 at gmail.com saying that, alas, he had been rejected, the young clarinetist accepted his fate, perhaps even crying out a mournful glissando on his girlfriend's shoulder. But several years later, when he saw Gilad at a gathering of clarinetists, 
The maestro said, my boy, you are the first student in all my years of teaching who has turned down an opportunity to study with me. The young man began to put the pieces together like gently twisting the African blackwood bell onto the lower joint of a hand-finished B&H 1010 and soon discovered that his girlfriend had intercepted his acceptance and concocted a series of fictive emails between would-be student and clarinet teacher, even inventing the fake email address from which the rejection had been sent. The young man sued his girlfriend now his ex, for the damage to his career. He's been awarded $350,000 by the court, but he probably won't collect. She didn't show up for the trial, and no one knows where she has gone, so we can't know exactly what combination of quill and cold moved her. But at least we know what instrument best approximates the cry of a porcupine longing for warmth. It's okay, but it's a little low. I'm not sure what that's about. Um, so you, uh, you were talking about sort of how comfortable you were talking about this stuff. Yeah. I, um, when you asked me to speak, I, I accepted very quickly. And I, I, I you know, I, I think I'm, well, I am a very open person, and perhaps I... Uh, if anything, on the negative side of that, I, I, I lack barriers. But uh, that being the case, I've always been uh, very frank and very uh, uh, e easy in my mind about sharing information. Does, because Sam is such a private person, does that obligate me to treat my relations with him as private matters? And that has been a question that I have been facing most of his life. I am a very extroverted person, and it was very difficult for me to understand Sam's reticence to deal with the world. And in many ways, since that was such a difficult concept for me to get around that he didn't want people coming in. He didn't want me talking about him. He didn't uh, want to interact with people. He, he didn't even want to eat with us. And for me to lead that solitary a life felt like failure. And when, certainly before we got the diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, I used to spend a lot of time trying to explain to Sam that it's important to have contact with the world. I used to 
he would mock me and I would constantly find myself saying, but you have to understand how other people feel. And I had completely missed understanding how Sam felt. And I, once I understood how sensitive he was to contact with anyone, including me, um, and I distanced myself from him, he was able to become warmer to me. Days would go by. He would time coming out of his room uh, so that we were either asleep or out of the house. So we would begin to wonder whether he was alive or had died in the room and how he ate. Every once in a while we would see dishes so we would know that he was eating. And he... When, if we made too much noise or watched television, and the thing was that his days and nights were so turned around that, let's say, we would be watching television at six in the evening, and he would come out and just scream at us that we had woken him up and that we shouldn't be watching television in the living room, and then he would just vanish back into his room. What's that, what was that like? For you? As I said, before or after the diagnosis, before the diagnosis... Which is what age? 14. Before the diagnosis, it was horrible because I just didn't understand. I, you know, I, the, that was an expression I said so frequently. I don't understand. I, I don't understand you know, and it was the question of what did we do wrong? Were we too permissive? Were we too were we too loving? I mean, I just I had a, when he came, I had so much love to give to him, and the more I reached out to him, the more he retreated, and you're just constantly refused. And it's the question of what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Because you, you know, a, a young child is someone that you are influencing. You really don't see it as that he's influencing you. And then once we got the diagnosis and I realized that it was never going to change and it was nothing I had done it became a lot easier to simply withdraw um, in a loving way. I mean, I realized that reaching out to him, trying to involve him in activities, uh, trying to uh, foster a, a friendship and a conversation was not doing him any favors and that he was extremely uncomfortable. Again, the uh, diagnosis for him when he was first diagnosed, he, he said, oh, so I'm not a retard. And the diagnosis for him has helped him to understand that other people function differently. Other people don't see conversation as threatening. And that I realized in many ways that I was never really 
going to become close with Sam, but that didn't mean that he didn't care about me. And the less I have to do with him, the more he likes me. It takes a lot of understanding to, uh, to comprehend, you know, understanding how other people feel. It took me a long time to understand that what I thought of as reaching out to him, he perceived as a threat. And in my own way, I think uh, I've learned to, to communicate by not communicating. <laughs> Before the diagnosis, I felt that he was failing to socialize. And I didn't see it as a syndrome. I didn't see it as a condition. I just saw it as somehow we had gone down the wrong road. Uh, and whereas after the diagnosis, I realized that was the nature of Sam. And you had to respect his, his, his basic nature in the same sense that I never really understood that my nature was extremely outgoing, you know, and, and it, it worked wonderfully for teaching. I mean, I, I, I really have a great interest in people, and I had a great interest in my students and enjoyed it, whereas somebody like Sam, I've always wondered, what would Sam really do in life? And, I mean, I could really see Sam in a position as a forest ranger Something like that, a, a job where you just don't speak to people for long periods of time. And he would love it. And it, it's, I, I don't think, I think it's within our natures. I think we are born that way. I don't think that, that it is something that you learned or the sum of your experiences or anything like that. I was extremely extroverted as a kid, and it didn't go away. And I, Sam was closed as an infant. What do you mean? He, uh, Sam was an unhappy baby. You know, he, he, he did not greet the world with a smile. And I did. You know, and I'm much happier personally. I think I'm essentially a happy person even when it's to my own detriment I just tend to have a very high level of satisfaction every once in a while he would get into these long really long conversations about how he felt and he would just pour out his heart to me and then he wouldn't speak to me the next day but Every once in a while, he would just come and he would talk about how he feels at school, how uncomfortable he is, how, and he would just talk about his world, and he would he would rant about his world, and every once in a while, he got very into politics on the internet, and he would rant about politics, and he would rant to me because he figured I was political. 
And just, it seemed like he could get it all out and then he would go back and do himself. Feel like connection to you? Yes. Oh, yeah. No, I was thrilled that he was sharing with me. Um, it was not, and I really worked at trying to follow his logic, even though I didn't necessarily agree with it. But I felt the only way I could connect with him was to was to go to his level and engage with him. And I did. And I was always very complimented when he would when he when he would speak to me. And as I've said, over once he hit his twenties, I think he sort of understood the world a little better. It's just he, he was just late in doing it. You know, I think what a lot of adolescents do at twelve or thirteen, he did at twenty. And he he at this point is much better at at connecting to people. It's not like he's good, but he's better. When I would um, say the blessings over uh, for Shabbos, um, he would get extremely distressed and uh, explain to me that he didn't want the neighbors to know that we were Jewish. So he, he didn't want me to sing. He was, And then there was a year... I think it was before the diagnosis where he was just so ugly and I just determined I wasn't going to speak to Sam. I hadn't even thought of that. I didn't speak to Sam for a year. And um, <laughs> I would uh, <laughs> I would start the blessings uh, for Shabbos and I would cry. Um, because it, it was just painful, and he just totally rejected me. He totally was scared of my voice. Uh, he saw it as a, a way of bringing in the world, and he didn't want that. He wanted to be totally enclosed in his privacy, and he was also extremely conscious of the fact that he was Jewish, and that was a source of shame and um, the neighborhood should not know and we should not be telling the neighborhood and we should not be wearing yarmulkes and we should uh, not in any way advertise. We should not have a Hanukkah. We should not have a sukkah. Uh, it was all, he saw it all as very threatening. I did not instill those values. Like, but it's it's been a battle every way through and at the end of a year of my not speaking to him, I was ready to speak to him. He wasn't ready to speak to me, but we finally uh, managed to do it. I hadn't, and I had. I think I've so repressed it. I I completely forgot about it. What was that like? Well, it, at first, I was just angry because I, I just I wasn't at home in my own home. I mean, I I just. 
He didn't like the way I looked. He didn't like the way I smelled. He didn't like the way I walked. He didn't like the way I talked. And that was all he could say to me, was how disgusting I was. And so I decided I didn't want to talk to him at all. He had to be in a situation where he he was more in charge of his own life. And I, I never realized how how powerless he felt because everything we were doing, the, the environment that we created, the house we created was in my reflection, wasn't his. And it wasn't how he would live. Once he's been in his apartment, he makes his own decisions in his apartment. And when he comes here, he's far more ready to accept a responsibility to interact with us because he no longer sees it as that we're trying to force our lifestyle down his throat. He's more accepting now. The other day, I, I honestly was so startled, he hugged me. I, I was stunned. And I didn't, and I didn't hug him back. Because I know he can do it. I can't. When when do you think was the last time he hugged you? I'm trying to think. I don't know if he ever had. But Sam, literally, this is, I think, the first year that Sam has ever willingly touched me. You know, had Sam... Had Sam been more outgoing, I was ready. I, I had always sensed that I didn't have a good relationship with my father. And I vowed I would not do the same thing with my kid. And I was looking for closeness. I mean, partially that was the problem. I was looking for closeness, and he just couldn't get near me. You know, any attempt I had to reach out put him in a panic. And so, you know, it was very unsatisfying for me and very unsatisfying for him. And it has, you know, there is a happy story at the end. He, is, he has accepted the fact that we actually do love him. Everybody gets a happy ending in their complex porcupine on a winter's night-like relationship. Take, for instance, the very grumpy German philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, and his mom. Letter from Joanna Schopenhauer to her son, Arthur Schopenhauer, dated 6th of November, 1807. You are not an evil human. You are not without intellect and education. You have everything that could make you a credit to human society. Moreover, I'm acquainted with your heart and know that few are better, but you are nevertheless irritating and unbearable, and I consider it most difficult to live with you. All of your good qualities become obscured by your over-cleverness and are made useless to the world merely because of your rage at wanting to know everything better than others. 
of wanting to improve and master what you cannot command. With this, you embitter the people around you, since no one wants to be improved or enlightened in such a forceful way, least of all by such an insignificant individual as you still are. No one can tolerate being reproved by you, who also still show so many weaknesses yourself, least of all in your adverse manner, which in oracular tones proclaims this is so-and-so, without ever supposing an objection. If you were less like you, you would only be ridiculous, but as you are, you are highly annoying. Letter from Joanna Schopenhauer to her son Arthur Schopenhauer, dated 17th of May, 1814. The door which yesterday, after your highly improper behavior towards your mother, you slammed so noisily, is closed forever between you and me. I am tired of bearing your behavior any longer. I'm leaving for the country, and I shall not return home until I know that you are gone. I owe this to my health, for another scene like yesterday's would bring on a stroke that might prove fatal. You do not know what a mother's heart is like. The more tenderly it loves, the more painfully it feels every blow from a once-loved hand. This I declare before God in whom I believe, but you yourself have torn yourself away from me. Your mistrust, your criticism of my life, my choice of friends, your desultory behavior towards me, your contempt for my sex, your clearly expressed reluctance to contribute to my contentment, your greed, your moods, which you allowed free reign in my presence without respect for me. This and a lot more that makes you seem vicious to me. All this divides us. My duty towards you is at an end. Go your way. I have nothing more to do with you. Leave your address here, but do not write to me. I shall henceforth neither read nor answer any letter from you. So this is the end. You have hurt me too much. Live and be as happy as you can be. The male begins to circle the lady porcupine, performing a curious shuffling dance. He watches for any sign that she is lifting her quilted tail. If she lifts her tail, that will indicate that she is receptive to his amorous advances. As he completes the dance, he lets out a plaintive cry. <coughs> How does a porcupine make love? How does a porcupine, how does a porcupine, how does a porcupine make love? Very, how does a porcupine, how does a porcupine, how does a porcupine make love? This has been Close Enough, the podcast about closeness and distance, and I am the lead porcupine and clarinet wrangler, Jeremy Wexler. Contributors to today's show were Orit F., Mayan S., and Hannah L., Menachem F., and Ilana F. Dr. Drinkling's track, Late Nights, that you heard at the top of the show, is our new theme music. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Drinkling. Please go to his Bandcamp page and support his beautiful, dreamy work. drdrinkling.bandcamp.com Other music on the show was As a Porcupine Pines for its Pork by Bill Jones and Ernest Hare and Jimmy Dorsey and his orchestra playing the absolutely beautiful Praying the Blues. The Grand Duo Concertant Opus 48 for Clarinet and Piano by Carl Maria von Weber was performed by William McCall, Clarinet, and Joseph Levine, Piano, which is shared under Creative Commons Share Alike license. Thanks to the Juno-nominated Gabrielle Pakambuki for supplying clarinet squeaks and noises, and to Sivan Slapak, Key Grip. Someday I will have you singing Yiddish show tunes on the podcast. Thanks to my friend Norm for speaking so open-heartedly about his experience of being a dad. The letters from Joanna Schopenhauer to her son, the very grumpy German philosopher, were read by Tali Abacassas, whose wonderful podcast, First Day Back, you should download as soon as you are finished here. The translations were adapted from David E. Cartwright's Schopenhauer, A Biography. I want to hear your stories about closeness and distance. Were you the last lighthouse keeper of the Orkney Islands? Did your conjoint twin run away with the circus? I want to hear about it. Send me an email at jeremywexlertherapy at gmail.com. That's J-E-R-E-M-Y-W-E-X-L-E-R-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y at gmail.com. The show is hosted at my blog, Mind My Own Business, at www.jeremywexlertherapy.com. You can head over there for more information about me or the show. This episode of Close Enough was sponsored by The Deproximator. Do you wish you could set boundaries but find asserting yourself terrifying? Now, thanks to The Deproximator, you can drive people away without saying a word. The Deproximator uses inaudible high-frequency sound waves to save you the emotionally messy job of telling people to leave you alone. Get 15 minutes peace or a lifetime of tranquility. The Deproximator has over 30 specialized settings, including racist uncle, boomerang child, and chatty coworker. Available wherever fine pest control products are sold. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Very, how does a porcupine, how does a porcupine, how does a porcupine make love? Very carefully. To replay this message, message saved, saved message. Hello, bonjour, Jeremy. Um, this is Yolanda and Nathan. I am just responding to your text message with the required information. So, here goes. Uh, so, a porcupine and a clarinet are in a bar. They walk into a bar. They sit down. They have some drinks. One or two turn into two or three. Two or three turn into five or ten. And, you know, they're pretty, pretty far gone. And, uh, they're having an argument. You know, trying to figure out who is Jack Deer, porcupine, or the clarinet. Going back and forth, the porcupine's like, oh, look at my muscles. And the clarinet's like, look at my shiny butt. And the porcupine's like, oh, but I have, I have a furry little nose. It's, you know, very attractive.
check out my reed. It's made of wood. And, you know, they're really at a standstill. And finally, they say, bartender, bartender, tell us, which one of us is sexier? What's going to be the, the final breaking point to say who's sexier, the porcupine or the clarinet? And a bartender brings his rag over his shoulder, looks at the two of them and says, well, that's easy. The clarinet gets blown all day, but the porcupine is just a bundle of hairy bricks. Okay, I have a different, different way of getting to the same place. What's the difference between the executive team of Vice Magazine and a porcupine clarinet? One's a bunch of hairy pricks that gets blown all day, and the other is a musical instrument shaped 